invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. After a 63-day hiatus from our chronological look at the life of Jesus, we return this morning. We left off 63 days ago, and we left off on his final Tuesday before his crucifixion. You'll recall that that morning he made his way over the Mount of Olives, made his way into Jerusalem. On his way in, he cursed a fig tree to teach us something of the temple. He then went into the temple, and he had quite the verbal skirmish with the religious leaders. When that wrapped up, he taught us something about himself and his sacrifice through the widow and her offering. And then... In a very symbolic and sad state of affairs, Jesus walks out of the temple, the Lord's temple, for the last time. That's where we left him. That's Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Let's look at that real quick. It says, Jesus left the temple. The Lord left the temple and was going away. It's when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. You might recall I showed you a short video of what the temple looked like. The temple was truly amazing. It was, it was huge, twice the size of shields. It was made of white marble. It was, much of it was covered with gold. The historian Josephus reports that there were stones in the temple that were cut and placed there they were longer than 37 feet long, 8 feet tall, and 18 feet wide. How they got those stones cut and moved and set in place is beyond me. That would be tough to, in today's world, let alone 2,000 years ago. The temple was a marvel. It was a standard, it was the standard of beauty and architecture. One rabbi, one writing that we have from the early century, before Christ, the centuries leading up to Christ, said, well, it was right around the time of Christ, to be exact, said that no one had looked at a beautiful or gazed upon a beautiful building until they had gazed upon the temple. So the disciples, as they're walking away from Jesus, it's full of activity because it's the Passover, hundreds of thousand peoples, they look at it and he's like, what an incredible building. You'd expect Jesus to say something along the lines of, yeah, it's incredible. It reflects the glory of God. But that's not what he says at all. Verse 2, he, Jesus, answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In today's vernacular, we might say, yeah, it's, a got, it's about to get blown up. Blown up. This would have been absolutely unimaginable. It was hard enough to get those stones there in the first place. How are you going to blow them all up? What Jesus says, though, of course, is true. Within their lifetime, the city of Jerusalem, the Jews 
and the Jewish temple would suffer the wrath of God by the hands of the Romans. And I tend to think it was because of the fact that they killed his son. More on this later. Now, Jesus is a very unbelievable prediction. It led to some questions by the disciples. They ask three very serious questions here in verse 3. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? As Jesus and his disciples walk away from the temple, and they walk up the Mount of Olives just to the east there, he takes his seat. And they would have had a beautiful and perfect view of the temple, much like if you were to look down on Billings from on top of the rims. As he's sitting there on the mountain, his disciples privately ask him, when is this going to happen? When is verse 2 going to happen? When will the temple be destroyed? They ask a follow-up question. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of your parousia? That's the Greek word. Important word when it comes to theology, interpreting the Bible. It can mean coming, it can mean presence, but within theological, the theological realm, we use the term parousia to describe the second coming of Jesus. When's that going to happen? What's going to be the sign of that, they ask? And then they ask another question, when will this age, when will this present age when will this present age come to an end? And when, by default, will the next age begin? They ask some extremely relevant questions. Questions uh, we'd all like answers to. And here's the thing, Jesus answers them. But as you may or you may not know, there is major disagreement over what Jesus means with his answers. The different ways people interpret this chapter are vast. On the one end of the spectrum, people believe that all of the events of Matthew chapter 24 have all already happened, including the second coming. On the other end of the spectrum are those who believe that none of the events of Matthew 24 have happened, and all of them still need to be fulfilled. And of course, in between those two spectrums, there are a plethora of other options. Now, which of those interpretations is correct? Well, I'm here to tell you with 100% confidence that I don't know. <laughs> I have my ideas. I have my conjectures. But if you haven't noticed, I've been putting off preaching this text for the last 63 days. And I almost got out of it another week with a fire alarm, but that didn't work either. 
So what are we going to do with this text? I'm going to tell you right now, it's confusing. I'm going to tell you right now, I preached the first service. I was like, ugh. I'll tell you else. I'll tell you something else from the first service. This text is beyond confusing. It's also very sobering. You're not going to walk out of here feeling good, positive and encouraged. What are we going to do? Well, I'm going to sit here and tell you right now that one of the extreme interpretations might be right. The ones in between might be right. There's a tremendous amount of humility and, boy, teachability that this text requires. What I'm going to do for us, I was really hoping to get through verse 35. This morning, I'm not going to make it through verse 35. We're going to try to land the same place we landed the first service, somewhere in the 20s. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out a five iron from my golf club bag. And I'm going to try to hit a five iron up the middle. What does that mean? That means I'm going to take a very easy club to hit. And I'm going to try to hit this text somewhere on the fairway. I don't want to go to an extreme. We're going to hit it down the middle of the fairway. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to leave the rest for you to decide and for us to talk about. And when we're done, I'm going to live with you and you're going to live with me in an understanding way, wrapped in a blanket of love as we learn from each other and try to make it to the end of this age lest our love for one another grows cold. One more important disclaimer. This morning I am not going to use labels and names of theological systems because they can, they can lead to divisiveness and dismissiveness. And I don't want to dismiss or divide anyone. Instead, I'm going to try the best that I can to stick to the language and terminology of Scripture as best I can. Let me give you a little preview of where we're headed. Our first point is going to be through verses 4 through 14. It's going to be called the end times. The end times. Jesus is going to describe for us in general what the end times look like. When we're done with that, we're going to begin verse 15 and run through verse 21. That will be entitled, The Fall of Jerusalem. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to talk about a specific time during the end times, and it was the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Once we get done with that, beginning in verse 22, Jesus is going to return to his discussion on the end times. And he's going to tell us that if God does not intervene, that we will all just end up killing each other, and no human being would be saved. And another characteristic of the end times will be the fact that there will be false messiahs, false Christ, who come and offer you a very tempting carrot to eat, to turn you away from the one true God. If it wasn't tempting, then he wouldn't have to warn us about it. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. 
I was, again, was really hoping to make it to the end of verse 35, but we're just not going to do that. For whatever reason, we need to handle that next week. So, the end times, point number one. I'm going to read for you all of verses 4 through 14. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then, the end will come. Jesus is describing for us the birth pains, the tribulations that mark the end times leading up to his second coming. Now, the end times of what? Listen, I'm a pretty simple guy. So I like to go for the lowest common denominator. Let me tell you what the lowest common denominator is when it comes to time. The beginning of time, the middle of time, the end of time. From my understanding of the Bible, it presents us with a rather simplistic outline of how this whole thing goes. According to the Bible, let's use the biblical language, there are two overarching ages. There is this age and there is the age to come. This age is marked by sin and destruction and death. The age to come is marked by holiness, justice, love, eternal life. This age, well, it is ruled, so to speak, by the God of this world, as he's called in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The devil, as he's referred to commonly in the Bible. The age to come... Well, it's ruled by King Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as he's called twice in the book of Revelation. Now, what separates this age from the age to come is the climactic and the cataclysmic event known as the day of the Lord. The day that Jesus returns to earth, the second coming what this text calls the parousia. That's when the devil is defeated and the Lord condemns 
every person from all time who has refused to surrender by faith to him for what he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Once that day is complete, the age to come will begin and Jesus will rule his people and lovingly dwell with them forever. That is the big, simple picture. And we fight and complicate it. This age will draw to an end at the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, and that will launch the age to come. That, I believe, is the mindset of the disciples when they asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your parousia, your coming, and the coming end of the age? They asked that question within this general eschatological framework. When will it happen, Jesus? To which Jesus replies, the time before the end, the time before my second coming, it will be marked with heartache and suffering. He tells us that people are going to come and claim that they're the Christ, that they have the answers, that they're the way. Question for you, has anybody in the last 2,000 years claimed to be the Christ? Have they led anyone astray? He says that time, that age, it'll be marked by wars, rumors of wars. There have never been bigger wars than in this last century. The devastation that we see on TV even today in Gaza and Ukraine, it's almost unimaginable for us sitting in the United States. Conflict between nations and kingdoms. Jesus promises famines and natural disasters like earthquakes, like the one that occurred the moment he died on the cross. People, powerful people, will hate Christians. It started with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It eventually spread to the Emperor Nero, who would kill him by the thousands. Yes, powerful people will hate Christians. They will cause you heartache and trouble and suffering. They will even put you to death, he says. You do realize, don't you, that the last century saw more Christians killed for their faith than the previous 19 centuries combined. People who claim to be Christians will fall away. 
It's as if the parable of the soils will come true. The deceitfulness of riches, the worries, the cares of this world, it will cause people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who got in it for all the wrong reasons, make life better. They'll fall away when they find out that Christianity doesn't make life better. As a matter of fact, it calls you to suffer and to suffer well. Those folks who cannot suffer, who refuse to suffer well as believers, they will fall away and they will betray the Christians who are choosing to suffer. We saw this in the early church. False converts, false believers would infiltrate the church. They would find out who the Christians were. They would fall away and then they would turn the Christians into the authorities so they could be arrested or killed. It's why in the first century, shortly after the first 150 years of the church, you found that the church would not baptize somebody until they had been catechized for three years. So they could prove that they in fact were a follower of Jesus. They will fall away. You will be hated, Jesus says. False teaching and false gospels will gain a following. I won't touch on that one. Lawlessness will increase. That means people will reject God's word, his laws. People will be characterized by deceit. They will steal. Man, have you seen the videos the last two years of people going in and ransacking the buildings and the police doing nothing about it? There are entire cities in the United States today that will not prosecute people who go in and steal from stores. They will kill, he says. They will murder it's gotten so bad that we will kill even the innocent, even our babies. Injustice will rule. That's what happens with lawlessness. Shoot, there'll be people calling for anarchy. Lawlessness. Injustice, rather than justice, will rule the day. They won't prosecute. They won't even prosecute. We could add commentary. They won't even prosecute mothers who murder their own babies. Instead, they will protect the murdering mothers and they will hate you for standing up for the innocent. Yes, people will do what is right in their own eyes. It will be like the book of Judges on steroids and like the end of Judges, God's people will be left longing for a king. Because lawlessness will increase, the love of many, or I'm sorry, the love of many will grow cold. The love of the church for the church will grow cold. Paul says it best in 2 Timothy chapter 3, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Man, could anybody imagine living in an age like that? Love will not rule. The love of many will grow cold. But do not fear, Jesus says. The gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be stopped. It will be proclaimed despite the desperate attempts of the devil to stop it. It will go throughout the whole world, as a matter of fact, as a testimony to the nations. Despite the devil's attempt to kill and to silence the people of God, proclaiming the message of God about the kingdom of God, it will not be stopped. And then the end will come. And Jesus will come again. So when do all these things happen? I'm going to be honest. Before the last 150 years, the church was, or I'm sorry, the church was pretty unified in its answer. When will all these things happen? Now. They happen now. They started at the ascension of Christ. As he stands there and he tells the disciples, as he be right before he goes to heaven, he says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. That's when it starts. And then we flip the page to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, all the way to the end of that chapter, end of, end of, chapter, end of the book of Acts. That's what I'm trying to say. We read... What do we read of? What is Acts an account of? It's an account of the unfolding of everything that Jesus says in Matthew 24. We see the persecution. We see the hatred. We see the love growing cold. It starts when he leaves. Church, we live in the end time of this age. Pastor, are you saying that there's not going to be more end times or a bigger end times or a harder end times? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the time that Jesus left from his first coming to his second coming are characterized as the end times of this age. And what Jesus describes for us in verses 4 through 14 is what we as believers live through during this age. We live in the end times. Or as the apostle John put it in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. 
We're going to find out that if we live through this life willy-nilly, not embracing the understanding that we live in the end times, we will never apply the last half of Jesus' sermon here on the Mount of Olives, which says, be ready. Live as if it is the end times. Be sober. Instead, we lull ourselves to sleep, pretending like it's all okay. Verses 4 through 14 promises us that the end times are hard, that things will go from bad to worse. There is the potential that you will have to suffer on every front, but do not fear, his kingdom will prevail. So that is the end times, verses 4 through 14. Let us now move on to a very specific event that happens within the scope of the end times. It is the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem. For this we look from verses 15 through verse 21. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath, on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That is, after this event happens, it's not going to happen like this ever again. What Jesus is doing is he is worrying of a humongous catastrophe that will lead to desolation. He's saying it's going to be so bad. If you're up on your roof, that's where they would hang out in the evenings because they were flat and it was cool. They didn't have air conditioning. If you're up on your roof, don't even go downstairs to get some stuff out of your house. You need to run now. That's how bad it'll be. If you're out working in the field and you take off your coat because you're hot, worked up a sweat, don't go get your coat. Oh, and pray that it won't be in winter. <laughs> Obviously, why he, it's obvious why he says that. Could you imagine running, fleeing for your life today? That alarm went off. And I'm thinking to myself, what are we going to do? It's so cold outside. Alas, you pregnant ladies and nursing moms. He says, whoa, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like for you if you've got to take care of an infant when the armies are chasing after you. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath. All the... Those who are Jews that have not come to Christ that are still obeying all those extra laws about the Sabbath, they're not going to help. They're not going to run. It's going to make things really difficult. This is going to be a catastrophe unlike anything you've ever seen. When it happens, when you see the sign of abomination of desolation, you better run. What's the abomination of desolation? What abomination would happen in the temple, if somebody were to come in and desecrate the holy temple. Desolation means this, that. It's desolate. It's, it's abandoned. It's, it's empty. It's destruction. 
Daniel speaks about it four times in the prophetic book of Daniel. He seems to be speaking of a time when Jerusalem and the Holy Temple will be emptied and destroyed. Now, an abomination such as this had already occurred before the time of Jesus in 168 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes built an altar to Zeus on the altar in the temple, and then he sacrificed a pig on it. If you're familiar with Hebrew religion, that is a big no-no. That is an abomination. Jesus says it's happened once, it's going to happen again. This time it will happen unlike any other time, and it won't ever happen this bad again. When did this abomination of desolation take place? Well, evidently, it happened sometime between A.D. 68 and 70. Scholars fight over what it is. I'll just be honest. It could have been when the Jewish zealots murdered the high priest in the temple just outside of the Holy of Holies, right around 66, 67, 68 A.D., or could have been when the unclean Roman army marched in and surrounded Jerusalem. That unclean army represented just pagan idolatry. They worshipped the emperor of Rome. They had emblems on them that no doubt could have been seen as pagan worship and could have been seen as the defilement of the holy city and the temple. It could have been also another event when their commander, Titus, went in and did something that we don't know about or unaware of in the temple. Although that seems that if that were the case, he did that a little late. The people, the Rome, I'm sorry, the Jews should have been running by then, before then. It could have been something else. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is this, that the temple fell and Jerusalem fell and it suffered unlike any city before and many would argue since. The accuracy with which Jesus portrays the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is so clear and concise that it has led secular theologians, secular historians to the conclusion that Matthew 24 was written after the events because it's so precise. We know this for a couple of reasons. One, who in the world would have imagined that somebody could blow up the temple? <laughs> but then what Jesus says about the people running and jumping from housetop to housetop and, and, not, and not being able to have time to get their cloaks and what the young women would have to go through with nursing babies, it all came true. We have a historian named just Josephus. He wrote a book called The Wars or The Jewish Wars. And he records the Jews fleeing to the mountains and the Jews literally jumping from housetop to housetop and the nursing moms. And it pains me to say this, but I'm going to say it. The nursing moms that had nothing else to do, they were so hungry, they were starving to death. And so... They cooked their children. It was a time unlike any other. Great tribulation. Merciless decimation of a city unlike any other 
in the history of the world. D.A. Carson writes, the savagery, slaughter, disease, and famine were monstrous. Mothers even eating their own children, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and according to Jesus, never to be equaled again. There have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated than during the fall of Jerusalem. So in verses 4 through 14, Jesus talks about the end times. And in verses 15 through 21, he talks about one horrible event during that age. What we have next in verses 21, I'm sorry, 22 through 28, is we have Jesus returning to his thoughts on the age in general, the end times. Now, if you're sitting there with your Bible open, you'll notice that there is no new paragraph between verses 21 and 28. D.A. Carson, who I lean heavily, I'll just be honest with you, he's, he's a smart guy I, learned, I, I, I trust, I really like D.A. Carson and Greg Beal on these things. I'll, that's, I'll, I'll throw that out there. D.A. Carson argues that there should be a new paragraph here, that Jesus starts or returns to the thought of the end of the ages. I'm not going to give you the arguments for it, but I'd be happy to send that to you if you'd like. You say, how could you make an argument for a new paragraph? I don't really think you sound like that in my mind. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> It's pretty simple. I mean, if, if you know anything about the original languages and the Greek, you know that Greek, there were no paragraphs in the original Greek. Those are all inserted by the translators. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. It's all inserted by modern day translators, okay? And D.A. Carson lays out lots of good reasons why a new paragraph should be started here. And there are a lot of people within the scholarly realm that think he's made some good points. So verse 22. New paragraph, so to speak. If those and if those days had not been cut short, what are those days? You got to make a judgment here, people. Is he talking about the fall of Jerusalem or is he talking about the end times? This is where Carson and this is where I believe that he goes back and he's talking about the end times in general. Could I be wrong? Yes. But this is where I'm going with it, in full disclosure. If those days, the times of the, old, the, the end times, had not been cut short, Jesus says no human being would be saved. And the idea there was saved is not salvation, eternal salvation. It has to do with life and death. You wouldn't be saved from death is the idea. If those days, the end times, had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If D.A. Carson is right, if this age, if the end times of this age, this time of evangelism and this time of tribulation, 
If they were not stopped by God, no one would survive. We just read Genesis 6. I think it was Monday this week for Abide. And the Lord saw that man's thoughts were only evil continually. And what did he have to do? He wiped them all out. Save one man and his family. Has man's hearts changed much? No. If God does not intervene during the end times, no human being would be saved. Everyone would die. Here's why D.A. Carson's uh, thought is gaining popularity. Before 100 years ago, nobody thought that'd be possible, that we could kill everybody. But it's possible, isn't it? That's why there's a multi-billion dollar industry known as prepping. One fear is that nuclear superpowers like the United States and Russia and China and now perhaps Iran and even North Korea that will all wipe each other off the face of the planet with a nuclear war. No one thought that was possible. A hundred years ago. Another fear that we now face is the weaponization of a virus that could spread all over the globe and infect every human being. Oh, but that could never happen, could it? Yes, Jesus says... If it weren't for the sake of the elect, if it weren't for God intervening for his people, no human being would survive. He goes on. What verse was that? Can somebody tell me? Was that verse 22? Yes. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Sorry, I had to wipe my nose. <laughs> Let's start over verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whoever, wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. How in the world, in the year 20, what year is it, 2024? How in the world would the world be gullible enough to think that we could have a savior like Jesus? I mean, hasn't science and technology debunked all that? 
What, what critically thinking, intelligent human being would believe that Jesus was in the desert or that there was a Messiah that could save us and make us well and give us what we want? I told you I wasn't going to use terms. I'm starting to sound like a dispensationalist. I'm not. But let me say this. Has anybody ever heard of AI? Artificial intelligence? All oh, pastors shouldn't go off on AI. It could bring us a lot of good. Many speculate that within the next decade, babies will be born with artificial intelligence planted within them, radically altering the human race. Today, there is an AI race that rivals only the great arms race of the Cold War. Countries are fighting to be the first. It's a race to build supercomputers. Supercomputers will be like an all-knowing, omnipresent God that will control humanity via AI integrated into the human body. The AI will feed people knowledge. It will, be, it will feed the information on demand when we want it. At the same time, as we live and are around the globe and we take information in through our senses, AI will be fed that information. Cell phones will be a thing of the past like a horse and buggy. One might be tempted to call these supercomputers that will be able to feed us all knowledge, whatever knowledge we want in the moment, be able to solve most or much of life's questions, some might be tempted to call these supercomputers saviors, gods, perhaps even a messiah. They will promise humanity longer, healthier, stronger lives free from disease. I wouldn't have believed it if I wouldn't have heard it from my own ears. ears. This last week I heard a podcast, the most listened to podcast in all the world. And they were discussing about how all humans need to do is tap in and unlock certain parts of our DNA so that we can once again live five, six, seven, eight hundred years. You know, like they did before the fall and Noah. These supercomputers, they will give us the knowledge and answers that we need faster than we can say, hey, Siri. I didn't say it because I don't want to wake all our phones up. <laughs> we will all be able to speak and understand one language. You know, like before the Tower of Babel, when we wanted to become like gods. They will promise humans, just like the serpent promised Eve, to make us like God, to know like God. We will give them our lives. We will give them our children. We will put our hope, we will put our trust 
in them. Jesus said, had the days not been cut short, no human being would be saved. His prediction here, it doesn't seem so far-fetched after all. It's almost as if everything he says is true. For over three and a half years, we've been looking at the one who's greater than everything in every way. He is greater than everything in every way. And as we try to make sense of this world, we try to make sense of all the chaos and the threats of war and the wars and the AI. As we try to make sense of it and as we see more and more rebellion and lawlessness, as we see a greater persecution and intolerance towards Christians, as we try to make sense of all of it, church, do not be surprised. As Jesus said in verses 4 through, 4, 4 through 14, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. No, church. Trust in him. Trust in him. He has declared the end from the beginning. And his kingdom, his kingdom will come. So as we leave this place, let us leave sober, sober. We'll find in the weeks to come, this is exactly Jesus's point. He didn't tell us these words so we'd fight about them. He told them so we'd sober up and we'd live in light of his return. So let's pray devote ourselves once again to the one who's better. Jesus, your half-brother James, he told us, be sober, be sober because you, you're at hand. Lord, may we live sober lives in light of eternity, in light of your second coming. Father, in light of the fact that we live during an age that will end, and with every day that passes, we're closer to that end. We're closer to the parousia, the day we will see you for who and what you are fully, and we will become like you, and you will dwell with us forever. Lord, help us to persevere to the end, you tell us those who persevere to the end will be saved. May you be with us day in and day out, even as we stand up from our seats today, that our love would not grow cold, that we would not be lawless, that we would love you, your word, and your appearing. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.